Turn your Bibles, please, to Gospel of John, chapter 21. Just verse 7 of chapter 21 and then go down to verse 15. I just want to paint a picture of this man, Peter. In verse 7 we see this being said about him. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. In verse 15, Jesus continues this conversation with with Peter. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And the Lord will bless the reading of his own word to us. I want you to imagine this scene in this church. A prominent member at a member's meeting. He's heavily involved in the life of the church and he stands before you and he says this to you. He confesses to a moral failure. He's been guilty of an inappropriate sexual relationship. He's deeply sorry. He's confessed to everyone involved. And he's shown a real repentance. And he asks forgiveness from the church. I wonder what your reaction would be at such a meeting. Some of the things on the slide there. Would you be concerned about the public witness of the church and feel that public discipline should be carried out and advise the person concerned to move away from the area and certainly move away from the church? Or would you thank God for his confession, forgive him, pray for his recovery and possible restoration for use and service in the church? What would be driving our answers? Should grace make a difference? in how we decide. I think we all believe in grace, but sometimes with qualifications. We believe that no one can come to faith through any other means. We believe that that God reveals himself to the individual and that he saves them. We do not believe that the works of, of the law can ever bring us to God. And we rejoice that God deals with us in this way because nothing else will simply work. But what happens later on in our Christian life? What happens as we enter into to church life among other believers? How are we treated? What's the basis of our acceptance of one of another? I grew up in Belfast, became a Christian when I was 18, and remember the emphasis that was given me in my early Christian life that convinced me that the sign of being a Christian was having a changed life, an absolutely, totally changed life. Everything had changed. Everything that I struggled with was gone and everything that was new was wonderful. And I grew up thinking, well, these struggles I was having, 
these issues I was having, the awareness of sin, the sensitivity to wrong in my life. Was I the only one here? Because nobody else seemed to talk about it. Nobody else thought about it. Nobody else seemed to convey that impression that failure, in fact, was a part of the growing Christian life. And passages that spoke of being in Christ and new creatures in Christ were given a scope, I think, that the writer never intended. And the effect was this. That people who became Christians thought that their acceptance was based on surface appearance, of keeping the rules, and of fitting in. And struggles with sin were private affairs and could never be shared with anyone for fear of being rejected. And in practice, the principles of grace were being interwoven with the bondage of legalism. I think we're all legalists in our heart somewhere, you know. We'd rather have people that keep the rules about us. And we'd rather have order about us than chaos. And we'd rather have functional people than dysfunctional people. We're, we're sinners, I think. And certainly the battle of the New Testament was about this struggle between grace and legalism. And very quickly all of these things became very evident. Those from the Jewish background contended for what they saw as the truth that the law, religious structures that were given by God could not be understood as having been completed totally in Christ. So they were held on to. Circumcision and temple life and priesthood and sacrifice were attained in the hearts and practices of many in the early church. And of course there were differences and degrees. Some of them were just plain heretics. Unless you're circumcised, you can't be saved. And others just added the law to grace and added the the adherence to the rules, to grace. It's okay to be saved in Christ, but what about this? And surely this is the issue that has been down through the generations, down through the centuries to our own time. When we believe that we are saved by grace, but in our hearts somewhere there's a, a kind of a desire that the law observance would have some part on it, somewhere along the line. I'm saved by grace, but Yeah, you know how we deal with each other? We say to one another, you have to treat me as a sinner because that's who I am. I need grace. You must treat me with grace. But I'd like you to keep the rules. And sometimes that's how we think about it, which shows that legalism is somewhere in us. His law observance, the basis of our community lives in the local church. How do we treat each other when they come among us? When people come among us who are broken, and to some degree we're all broken, who may or may not be Christians, how do we view them? I remember a good number of years ago in Newry, this is a personal illustration, a couple came to us who had been through multiple relationship issues and problems and all kinds of stuff in their background, and they arrived at the door and introduced themselves in name and said, and we're Christians after the story, and we become believers. How should we treat those folk? Do we ask are they going to fit in? Do we pray that God would just take them somewhere else? Or do they make us feel uncomfortable because they're not the same as us? Their relationship isn't the same as our relationship. And if we're acting as a community of grace, how should they be treated? I want to earth this just in this life of Peter 
and just what happened to him around this time of failure and what took place afterwards. Peter was an incredibly passionate man. He was a faith risk taker. He was a man driven by love and devotion to his saviour. His discipleship, I think, showed a depth of love that was real. And when Jesus' words were driving the professing disciples away, he confessed that Jesus alone had the words of eternal life, and where else could he go? And later we see him developing as a leader. And when he's in this boat on the lake, we remember that incident so well. Peter's faith in Jesus' words allowed him to put his legs over the side of the boat and to walk on the water for a while, while the rest of them chose the safety of the boat. There was no doubting his faith, no doubting his love. But the awful failure came, and we read about it in Luke chapter 22. This awful incident. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked permission to sift all of you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your own faith may not fail. When you have turned back, you must strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go even to prison and to death with you. But Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. And Jesus was telling Peter that Satan had asked permission to sift them all as wheat. The devil's intention, take away the wheat and leave the chaff. It was God's intention that the wheat would remain and the chaff be blown away. And the outcome of trial will always show the true nature of the person. If the sifting only leaves chaff of empty profession, then failure will lead to a walking away from Christ. But whenever it leaves behind the sifted wheat of real relationship with God, he is able to use people like that again. Chaff makes excuses and justifies actions. Wheat repents and seeks relationship. And Peter wept bitter tears of repentance and was going to be used again. Peter and the disciples were being sifted as wheat. And in John chapter 21 we read, Jesus' response to what Peter had done. And three times within that section we see these words, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? God always deals with this with his people in this kind of way. You go back to the Garden of Eden and you see exactly the same thing after the fall. When God came, he didn't say, What have you done? He said, Where are you? And similarly here he says, do you love me? What? Let's talk about this, Peter. You've done some terrible things. We'll need to get this into the open. We'll have to discuss it. You'll have to be disciplined. You'll have to be sorted. No, do you love me? Do you love me? He did not address the failure, but his love. He did not say, what have you done? But do you love me? And this is always the more important question. Failure was not going to be allowed to disqualify him from the task that Jesus had for him. And surely, do you love me, is still God's question at a time of failure. And it is still the best way to find out the core of our being. Let's move forward about six weeks from this. The day of Pentecost, thousands of people are gathered in Jerusalem and many of whom would have seen the death of Christ and certainly been aware of all the, the surrounding circumstances of that time. 
They would have been aware about Peter and his failure, and disciples' failure, and how they all took off and ran away. It would have been the gossip of the streets. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 14, we read this verse. Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. And at first sight, this doesn't seem a particularly remarkable verse, but it is a verse, surely, that is filled with grace. It is filled with grace. Those who watched this day must have seen Peter, the great failure, standing up along with the rest of the failures. This only happened a few weeks before. They must have laughed at him. Indeed, they did laugh at him. They drunk these guys. Failure standing up and going to preach to us. And look what they have done. And surely the disciples themselves must have been amazed at what was happening. Failure was still ringing in their ears, but Jesus had forgiven them. He had treated their failures as forgiven and in the past. And the disciples had forgiven each other. And they were now working together in the service of the Savior that they had failed, but had always loved. Six weeks after their collective failure, They are preaching God's gospel to crowds. Well, what had happened? Well, God did not write them off as faith failures. They all loved Christ. And despite the pain of the failure, they still wanted to serve him. They did not allow their failure to indelibly mark their lives. They had failed, but they understood that grace was at work. They had now lived as redeemed followers of Jesus Christ. And their relationship with Christ was secure and it was based on grace. Their forgiveness was an act of grace and they didn't deserve that. What do you think the crowd must have felt after they got over this initial humor thing? After they seen Peter preaching, what must they have felt? They witnessed Failures preaching as redeemed people, as forgiven people. And surely this must have been good through their head. What kind of a God does this? What kind of a God is it who forgives failures in the way that they failed, in the way that Peter failed? What kind of a God forgives in that way? What kind of grace is this? Their gods and maybe our gods. Maybe the thinking that we have about God is one that will condemn and write off and reject. But what kind of a God forgives failure and uses them again as preachers of grace? All of us, to some degree, have failure in our lives. I'm sure that every one of us have cupboards that we hope are never opened thoughts that we thought acts that we performed and we hope nobody ever finds out we know that God knows but we're somehow afraid of all of that it's a fearful thing it damages our relationship with God and certainly damages our relationship with one another and that's why it's easier to live in the area of legalism and law and being right and appearing right than it is to live in the real world sometimes who we really are One or two applications that you can go and think about. 
We need grace-filled communities to reach communities without grace. Our society surely is marked by an absence of grace. Justice is twisted and homes in this area all around this church are fractured and broken. And people need to hear the message of God's grace. But it is important, isn't it, that people see God's grace at work within the lives of those who are the church. And before people will feel at ease among us, surely we need to be at ease with each other. And grace should inform our life together. It should transform our relationships. Throughout the New Testament, we see this emphasis again and again and again. In Colossians 3, where Paul saying to the church at Colossae, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord forgave you, so you also must forgive And we don't have to think about that for very long to understand what God has forgiven us. That in the privacy of our own hearts, we understand what God has forgiven us. And that's how we deal with each other. That's the standard, the gold standard that we must operate under. The communities around us and around you are filled with people who have lost values and structures. And when God saves them, they will present themselves to you as perfect people who are being made holy. Let them see grace at work within your lives. May this be a grace space, a space where grace envelops, a space where grace operates and where it really, really works. And treat those who come among you with grace, with a recognition that together, you're on the road of holiness. Grace allows time to change. Hebrews 10 and 14 is one of those verses, you know some verses you keep with you all the time, and this is one that I keep with me all the time because it it helps me so much, and I think it's, it's a really useful verse for any believer. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. By one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And in Ephesians 1.4 we know that we have been chosen before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. But grace needs time to bring change within our lives. At the point of conversion we thank God that we are declared perfect by a holy God. Our sin is taken by Christ. His righteousness bestowed in us as a free gift. But we also know that we're being made holy. At one level we are perfect. But in this world we are not perfect. Our righteousness is complete in Christ. But our personal righteousness and holiness is not complete. One speaking of our position in Christ and the other of our progress and holiness. Being made like Christ. And this is a slow and a sometimes painful road to travel on. I remember as a young Christian thinking that people who were kind of what age I am now, that they had it all taped, you know, and they kind of had it all worked out. And so you could go to an older person and say, what's the secret? And I remember saying that to some older believer once, and they looked at me with kind of a bit of disgust really in their voice and and said, listen, 
The closer you get to the light, the more you see the dirt. And we never are far away from dirt in our lives. We will have it with us right throughout our existence in this world. And it is obvious that there is a slowness. You read books like 1 Corinthians, verse 2. Here's what Paul says to the church there. I am writing to God's church in Corinth, to you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. He made you holy by means of Christ Jesus. I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he has given you now that you belong to Christ Jesus. Through him God has enriched your church in every way with all of your eloquent words and all of your knowledge. I tell you, you wouldn't think that was being written to the church at Corinth because it's not very long before you're immediately into the issues of this church. Divisions of loyalty, some of them following Apollos, some of them Paul, quarrels and arguments. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, to live in harmony with each other, Paul says. Let there be no divisions in the church. The spiritual pride of chapter 5. I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. Something that even the pagans don't do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. This is the, these glowing introductory terms of Paul is addressed to this church with all its failure. And this recurring sin mentioned again in the book. The immorality of this church, the sexual sin of that church, and the abuse of the Lord's Supper in chapter 11 are just some of the points that we see that Paul writes to this church that he says was filled with grace, called by grace. And yet here they were in the midst of all this confusion and all this difficulty and all these problems. Grace takes time to perfect its work, and we must allow time for grace to work. When people come into the Christian faith, you know, it's maybe a good thing to take them aside and say, let me tell you about my problems. I've been a Christian for 15 years or 10 years or 40 years. Let me tell you about the issues I'm struggling with. And put them in a context to realize that the Christian life is going to be about that. It's going to be about the struggles of faith, the struggles of holiness. In Ephesians chapter 4, this, this church that had been wonderfully blessed with the grace of God and in chapter 2 told that, that, that they were saved by grace by faith and a gift of God and they had all this bouncing around in their heads and in chapter 4 he tells them to throw off their old sinful nature, their former way of life which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes put on the new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. And I'm sure you have read the immediate applications from that section. His first application to the church, to the people of the church, was to tell them to stop lying. Stop lying. Tell the truth. Don't let your anger get out of control. Stop stealing. Go and get a job. Stop using foul and abusive language. This is the church of Ephesus. And surely the church at Windsor is no different. Or the church in Newry is no different. We are all saved by grace, but grace must envelop our lives so that we live by grace that we deal with each other in grace, 
that we're able to speak into that community with grace, that we're able to bring people into this community here who are dysfunctional in every way and accept them with grace and to seek together to see grace change all of our lives. Allow time for change and do not be harsh with those who fall or fail. Peter illustrates how God works in the lives of failures. It shows us how grace transforms lives and brings people to be conformed to the image of Christ. And we thank God for the transforming grace of our conversion. But we need more and more to learn how grace works in our communities, in the lives of our churches, in the lives of the community all around us that doesn't know anything about grace. May the Lord help us.